Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Law. This is your host of the New Books in Law channel, Bobby Sharon, an associate in the Environmental Safety and Health Practice Group of Squire Sanders, working out of the firm's Cleveland, Ohio office. Today on the program, we are delighted to have Professor Jay Wexler to discuss his book, The Odd Clauses, Understanding the Constitution Through Ten of Its Most Curious Provisions. Professor Wexler, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's our pleasure. Professor Wexler is a professor of law at Boston University, where he teaches the First Amendment, administrative law, and environmental law. Before his appointment at Boston University, Professor Wexler clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and also served in the Justice Department's increasingly infamous Office of Legal Counsel. Professor Wexler made national headlines in 2005, including a front-page article in The Times when he published a three-page piece in The Green Bag analyzing the transcripts of Supreme Court oral arguments in order to study the relative comedic chops of the justices. His serious scholarship focuses on the Establishment Clause. Professor Wexler is a prominent member of the legal Twitterati, and you can follow him at SCOTUS Humor, where he provides ongoing coverage of laughter at 1 First Street. Professor Wexler has published several excellent books, and among them is The Odd Clauses. Um, Reviews from the back of the book say it is magical. You'll have so much fun reading about these unsung constitutional provisions that you won't realize until the trip is over how much you've learned. And that's from Pamela Carlin, professor of constitutional law at Stanford Law School. And that's just one of the many uh, highly praiseworthy quotes. From my friend. From a friend. See, now we understand how these are made. Um, The physical book is a paperback. It's published by... Eakin Press out of Boston. Um, it's got a, a, a gorgeous frontispiece on the cover, which it is the scene at the signing of the Constitution of the United States, um, courtesy of Wikimedia Commons. Um, and, and wonderfully, the back also contains two um, tiny animals to, to capture the theme of the book, which is the Constitutional Zoo, if I have that right. That's right, but there are, you, there are animals on the front, too. That's the key. See, people miss the little... You see, if you look at... I don't know if you have it there right there, but there are a couple little animals in the front in, that, in the picture. I, I've just now seen them now, and I can confirm that... I think that's... Is that a lemur? I think it's a lemur, and there's a ferret, and some other thing. Maybe there's a... Oh, I... I, I kind of looks like Lemmy Winks from South Park, but I couldn't identify one of them. Well, that's just delightful. Um, and you know, the, the original, the original draft of the cover had uh, six animals, and, but we decided it, w- it was wasn't subtle enough, so we ditched three of the animals. Hmm. But now it might be too subtle because people don't always notice them. Right, and I'm having trouble not seeing them now. Um, yeah. it, now that you mention them, that, that, that's that's great. I did think it was interesting that I thought there were only two, and I thought you know I would think there would be more in the zoo. It kind of just seems like the frog and the um, is that a groundhog on the back? We're just, you know, friends. Um, it's, a wom- it's, a wom- it's a wombat. A wombat. I'm sorry. 
my my zoological I need to work on my zoological knowledge uh, for this for the next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, the so that's the cover. The book is 222 pages, including an index and notes. Um, the typography, I have to say, is quite excellent. Now, did did you have anything to do with with how nicely it's typeset, or is that is that Beacon Press? That's entirely Beacon Press. They they did a wonderful job. It's a it's a joy to read. Um, well typeset, um, and so let's talk about the genesis of the book, um, which helpfully this book actually has its origin story in it. But I'll let you um, take it away and relate how this book came to be. Sure, I was. Uh, this is when I was at the Office of Legal Counsel that you mentioned before it became infamous, and uh, you know it became infamous in the Bush administration with the torture memo that came out of there. But when I worked there, it was long, long before that, and I was working uh, there. And one of the things we did was to uh, kind of comment on constitutional problems and proposed bills, and from time to time we get some really strange constitutional provisions would, would pop up, like the Titles of Nobility Clause. Um, and I, uh, so we were dealing with these weird constitutional clauses that you never study in law school and you don't ever talk about in the, in the media, et cetera. And I thought, great. Um, and I thought, well, someday I'm going to write a book about these weird clauses um, and let people know about them. But of course, it took 10 years or, or whatever since it, until I was able to do it. But that, you know, I promised myself I was going to do it. And then I finally got the chance. And and let's talk about the the methodology of the book because one of the one of the great things about this is that there there seems to be a formula here and and I don't know if I'm giving it away but uh, can you talk a little bit about how each how you've laid out each chapter for each clause? Yeah, well, the idea was not uh, not to just talk about uh, interesting weird clauses uh, by themselves, but also to link them to some general concept in the Constitution, some, some, some function that the Constitution serves, like creating presidential power or promoting equality, uh, something like that. So for each clause, um, we, I try to use it as an illustration of, that, of the power that I'm talking about. And I also like to, in I think every chapter, at least most of the chapters, try to bring up some modern controversy or theoretical controversy that could happen someday that involves the clause to show that they that they are important even though they're odd and the the one of the themes that comes through having attended law school which i would this book is especially well recommended for those who have and have not and especially people who are in law school and in particular people who are going to take or about to take administrative law and while i i don't even think I found the word administrative law in the book. I might have missed it. Um, but it, it seemed to be a guiding principle in terms of the subjects that were covered. Is, is, am, am I close to, to write on that? Um, well, I mean, I, I teach administrative law. I've taught it maybe a dozen times, and, and I find it really interesting. So it made its way into the book in various ways, since it's something I know about. I'm not sure I thought of it as a major theme or anything. Um, I think it's just my inclination is to talk about administrative law. And I think administrative law and constitutional law are really closely related, particularly in separation of powers and, um, you know, the creation of the government, which, which uh, which branches have what powers, that sort of thing. 
So, I mean, administrative law, in a sense, is constitutional law, at least part of it. So I guess that would explain why why there's a lot of administrative law in the book. But you're right, I didn't, you don't want to say the word, word administrative law because that just makes students want to go to sleep. Right. Uh, yeah. If you if you'd have named it the administrative law classes, I don't think it would have done nearly as well. Or um, yeah, so it would have sold like fifty copies instead of seventy. Right. Yeah. The the, the additional twenty of of the mystery of mystery of the odd probably very important. But also a little. We should add, I should add that so the office of legal counsel is closely associated with the executive branch. Right, yeah, it's located in the executive branch because it's part of the Justice Department, and it gives constitutional advice to executive branch officers, the Attorney General, the White House Counsel, uh, agency heads, and, and such. And and is, do you also get requests from the from Congress? Well, o- only to the extent that bills from Congress get uh, circulated through the executive branch. Uh, at some at several points during their consideration, they go uh, the the committees and Congress send the bill to OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, which then distributes the uh, the bill across the executive branch. So, no, they uh, we don't give advice. Well, we uh, back in the day, or whoever works at OLC now doesn't give advice directly to Congress. They give uh, comments to Congress about what the executive branch thinks about bills and and such. Now, the when you're researching the book, now you said it took about 10 years, um, but at least for part of the time when you had the concept, you were actually at um, the Office of Legal Counsel, and, and there's, a, there's at least a public library of Office of Legal Counsel opi- uh, opinions, and, and I like to imagine that there's a non-private, even larger library of opinions. Were you able to, with any of these, did, were you able to review or look at or rely on um, actual OLC work product? Um, not that I didn't, hadn't worked on, no. Like I, so I didn't call up my old colleagues who happen to still be there. Maybe if there were a couple of them, I guess there probably were and asked them, could I see some old opinion, some that you haven't published yet or something like that. Um, on the other hand, you know, I wrote a couple or drafted a couple and that maybe aren't public, and so I drew upon my knowledge of, from that I got from writing those. Interesting, interesting. And, and the book has a very definite, and, and, and your work in general has a very definite writing style that I would say is, is reader-focused, entertainment-focused, and it seems to assume that I might get bored and walk away at any minute so that you're going to do everything you can to avoid that. Is that, that, is that an intentional... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's absolutely. Well, you know, when you teach law, you you understand that even if you like law, sitting there and listening to somebody lecture about law can be somewhat of a dull experience. So you do want to keep people awake. And, uh, and, and <laughs> I mean, that's what you learn from 10 years of teaching or 12 years of teaching is you got to you got to you got to throw some stuff in there from time to time that people will laugh at. And, you know, that goes, it's not just to keep them awake, but, you know, it's to keep me awake also. Otherwise, I might fall asleep at the podium. Right. And and so it's replete with pop culture references and, and other jokes. So it's really, it is it is a delight to read, even even apart from all of the great um, arcane trivia and, and um, interesting constitutional analysis. So um, let's turn to some of the the odd clauses and 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 hear what what you found when you did your research. So, 
The first chapter is the incompatibility clause, and it is slated to discuss the concept of separation of powers. Right. The incompatibility clause is a great clause that a lot of people don't know about, maybe very few people know anything about. It's basically the part of the Constitution that says if you're a member of Congress, you can't also be an executive officer. And so, you know, if you look around and you you think about it, um, you've never seen a member of Congress at the same time be like the Secretary of State or the head of EPA or something like that. And you might wonder why that is. And the only reason is that there's this clause in there um, that the framers put in there uh, to separate to separate powers between the executive and the legislative branch. And and so presumably it's not because the members of the legislative branch are extremely busy reading bills, you're saying? (laughs) No, the uh, members of the legislative, they're busy. I mean, I don't know what they do. I don't think they read all the bills. Um, But uh, it's not uh, not because we want to keep them busy. It's, uh, It's rather to keep the two branches separate uh, and uh, and you can't and they can't be separate if you've got people who are in both uh, branches at the same time. And and you draw from this lessons on the concept of separation of powers, which I mean it's a pretty heady topic to to start things off. Well, it's it it's heady. You think? I, I guess it's heady, um, but it's it's really important. And you know, it's one of those things that everybody learns about, kind of in like elementary school and then a little bit more in high school. And But if you actually say, hey, what does it mean? Uh, it can, it, that's kind of a hard, it's a really hard question. Uh, and I think it's worth, you know, telling people a little bit about what it actually means and, so that they, they know what this grand concept is in practice. And, you know, it's a combination of keeping the powers uh, separate, but also giving branches power to limit what other branches do. So it's a really complicated system and important. So, uh, you know, I want to start off heady. I, I, I'm not joking around here. Yes, and, and from there, the book turns to the Weights and Measures Clause. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a subject of great debate between my editor uh, and me. I really wanted to write about the Weights and Measures Clause, and they um, uh, were really skeptical about it. They, they thought it was uh, really not illustrative of anything, and it wasn't, I mean, it was even too odd to be discussed in the odd clauses. And I was convinced that the, that the story of the metric system um, and, the, and the, the, the United States refusal to ever adopt the metric system, which it could, ha- it could uh, under the Weights and Measures Clause. It's up to Congress to decide whether to adopt the metric system. I thought that story was interesting and important enough to, uh, to talk about in the whole chapter. And eventually I, I did prevail. I don't know if I just, they just got tired of arguing with me or they, they finally agreed with me or what. But there it is, the Weights and Measures Clause. And, and of the legislative powers, it's interesting to choose the Weights and Measures Clause. It's usually when people would think of, of the Commerce Clause, of course. Right. Well, if you were writing a book about the really important clauses, you would put the Commerce Clause in there. But, but if you were writing about the less important clauses, you, you would uh, go right sort of to the end of the list of powers and 
find something goofy like this one. Right. And, and the question, I mean, that I had, I mean, I just was, was thinking if I had homegrown weights and measures, whether or not Congress could forbid that because I might affect the market for weights and measures by not buying a ruler. Did, did that did that come up at all in the research? Have they have they looked at that? Uh, uh, your, you mean did they look at your uh, weird wet measures that you came up with in your garage? Right. Yes. No. Yeah. <laughs> they're for <laughs> no, medical. Was, they're for medical it, purposes. Uh, right. No. It, well. No. But it, it it's definitely a uniformity uh, inspired provision, so that you don't have. I mean, I think what they were worried about not so much uh, individuals, but uh, states coming up with their own measurement systems, and what a pain that would be for commerce. You know, these are this is these are the days, of course, when the states were were more powerful than the federal government, and uh, so when you're making a federal constitution to consolidate power in the national government, you have to think about what you don't want the states to be able to do anymore. And one of those things is to have you know 13 different measuring system. So that's why Congress gets the power to set the weights and measures to make sure we only have one set for the United States as a whole. Was it clear whether or not the weights and measures clause includes the measurement of time? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I could, imag I could imagine a state nefariously outlawing the leap second and then causing chaos. Well, there's that thing in Indiana where they don't follow, um, you know, part of the state or whatever doesn't follow daylight savings time. Right. Uh, maybe that's a violation of the Weights and Measures Clause. I think we should really work on getting a, a dormant Weights and Measures Clause. So yeah. We can strike <laughs> we down some of these things. Clauses, I think, yes. I don't know. It could be a law review note for some uh, industrious law student to work on. That would, be, I, that would be well worth reading. Hopefully the green bag will solicit um, and then we we turn to a clause that I think there's a place where you assert that this is just the most you know of course this will never I, I can't remember what, whether you said that it would ever go before the court but then we we turn to the recess appointments clause right yes the, which turns out to be at the center of uh, constitutional discourse at the moment see when I wrote this chapter uh, a few years ago. The recess appointments uh, clause is the one that gives the president the power to fill up recesses, uh, to fill up vacancies during, when the Senate is not around to vote on them, appointments. So uh, when I was researching this, there were maybe like three law review articles about the meaning of the clause, and maybe there was one case or something. Now, the Supreme Court has, has just heard a, a, a front page kind of case about the recess appointments clause. And what's interesting is now every single legal scholar, you know, constitutional scholar in America, like the most famous people, they've all written an article about the recess appointments clause. So, you know, Tribe's got a piece and, uh, and Sunstein's probably got six pieces already. And um, Pushnet probably has a couple. So everybody's, every, every scholar now cares about the recess appointments clause. But, you know, where were they when I was, when I was working on this stuff? That's what I want to know. Well, and, and, and hopefully they have, they're gentlemanly about it and are citing you in all of these no, publications. No, nobody cites me. Nobody, nobody cites my, my work. It's a, it's a sad fact. It's just uh, it's too goofy or something. I don't know. We haven't seen the Supreme Court opinion in the case, which is, uh, they've, they've had the oral argument. So maybe, maybe it's still on the way. Right? I mean, if, you know, I think they should. I think it would be, be really nice for them to, to 
it would really help my career if one of them would just cite it, even as a, like a C generally or a CF or even but C. I would take a but C. You know, <laughs> but C being the legal citation equivalent of um, of throwing shade at something. <laughs> so the it's very interesting. Have you listened to the oral argument in the um, in in the case? I haven't. I read it. I read the transcript, and. It doesn't look like the president's going to win, but uh, I don't think I don't think it's that important of a case because, as I mentioned in the in the book, and I'm picking up on somebody else that wrote about this, and I sort of delivered his message to the 70 people who read the book. Which uh, the point is, the Resource Appointments Clause works for all presidents equally, regardless of what party they're in. So, if the president's powers ends up limited under the Supreme Court, it's uh, you know it's a defeat for Obama. For, for this term, but it's a defeat for the, whoever the Republican president is next time around. So it's not that important of a case, I don't think, although it's really interesting. Uh, of course, I'm interested to see how it comes out. What, what, you know, here I'll share a little theory that I've come up with about the Recess Appointments Clause recently as I was thinking about the case. Um, what's really weird about the Recess Appointments Clause is that uh, it has a complete, the purpose that originally uh, gave rise to it. It doesn't exist at all anymore. It, you know, it was it was put in there so that so that if the Senate couldn't come back, uh, could then the president could make an appointment. But the Senate now these days could always come back. There's not the problem of travel and communications and such. So, so there's really no need for the recess appointments clause anymore. But so what presidents have been using it for is to is to uh, to circumvent uh, the appointment the regular appointments process when that appointments process has become dysfunctional. And so what I like to think of it as, as uh, constitutional exaptation. An exaptation <clears throat> is a, the concept from bi- biological evolution, which where uh, a, a behavior or a, a uh, physical trait once served one purpose, and now it serves a different purpose, like feathers used to keep dinosaurs warm, but then they evolved into being feathers, uh, being bird, you know, helping birds fly. And so the recess appointments causes like that. There, I've, I've made that. I've, I've explained that. Isn't that interesting? Very. Um, it, it is interesting to see uh, somewhat important seeming detritus, and then seeing how the how the justices react, which you cover in the in the in the chapter so well. And um, you, I think the predictions are pretty uniform that it's that the NLRB appointments are going to be um, held to violate the clause. But the the real question is is what are they going to do about it? Right? How do you? Hmm. What's the remedy? How how far does this go? I mean, are we undoing? Um, yeah, I think we have to say that Justice Rutherford or whoever it was that President Washington uh, appointed under the Recess Appointments Clause maybe was invalid. I don't know. No, I I don't know. I w- what will they do? I, I I don't know what. I don't think it'll. I mean, see, most most of the people who get appointed by the Senate. Uh, get appointed, I'm, I'm sorry, under the Recess Appointments Clause, right? They ha- either their term has run out or they get confirmed by the full Senate at some point. So there aren't probably that many recess appointees left, right? Is, so what's the question? The, um, whether whether people have been harmed by agencies that were headed by recess appointees that were invalid, something like that? Right, I guess if there's if there's some sort of standing order from a recess appoint a recess appointed person or or I mean I, I've, it seems like what they'll do is something akin to well you didn't raise it at the time so too bad um, yeah it, it, 
it will be an interesting <laughs> remedial paragraph or two in the opinion. Tim, I didn't, I didn't raise my odd clauses defense. That's why you should always keep a copy of the odd clauses so that you don't um, waive any of these arguments. I think, if, I think that's a good point. I think every law, uh, you know, young lawyer or experienced lawyer really should have a copy. And so after they file their brief and whatever the case is, they should just take a quick look, you know, browse through the odd clauses, see if they missed anything about the, you know, maybe the letters of mark and reprisal clauses was a possible issue, that sort of thing. It could be very helpful as a reference for just about everybody. Right. And, um, now, and now, now, moving to a clause that is just very near and dear to my own heart, the original jurisdiction clause. Oh, yeah, that's right. You love this thing. Yes. You've written about this. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's, it's tremendous. It's the clause that allows states to sue each other directly in the, in the, in the Supreme Court itself without going to any lower court first. And the... You use it to discuss the judicial power, the um, law professor's favorite power of the Constitution. Right. Uh, well, some some law professors' favorite power, but yeah, it's uh, it's one of the weird parts of the Constitution. You know, there's not that much about the judicial power in the Constitution, but um, there are a few things, and this is the weirdest, I think, or and most interesting. So, I wanted to. I thought I could use this as a way to illustrate the judicial power, but mostly it was a way to talk about these cases uh, where, you know, Oregon sues Wisconsin or Vermont sues Maine over some lobster boat, which is in its waters that shouldn't be or something like that. They're great cases. I think the court hasn't heard one in a while, but I think I read something about how they're planning to at some point soon. Florida has filed a petition um, or filed for leave to file a, a bill of complaint against Georgia. That's the one that um, we, we haven't heard Georgia's answer. Like a college football game, right? And well, in there, so so yeah. Let's let's talk about some of the cases. So the 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 before before turning to the college football one, the do you want to talk about New York and New Jersey? Um, well, I, briefly. I mean, that's the case that I talk about most in the chapter. It's about whether um, the Statue of Liberty belong to New York or New Jersey. And it's one maybe the most uh, well-known of these cases that's come up recently. And I won't, I won't give away the ending, uh, but it's, uh, it's fascinating. And I think there's a movie in the works with Kevin Costner. It, it, hopefully it'll be about four hours long. Um, with with so. the entire, they'll just have the entire argument um, before the court, and and so in 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 that case, it was fairly clear that the court had jurisdiction. Um, but then then comes the um, this case about college football, and 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 now things get a little less clear, right? Oh, right, the college football. That's the, the California versus uh, versus the West Virginia case, right? And the court said, uh, you know, you might have to remind me about this. This is so odd. I I may have forgotten. So this- so there, there's a contract to. Uh, play a football game between two state universities, and they file in, in in for the original jurisdiction, and and the court refuses to take the case. Um, oh right, right. So the court can the court can refuse to take uh, one of these cases if it if it feels like it's not big enough of a deal, kind of. And then Stephen says, "No, we should take all the cases that are like this." And I think he's right. That not only should they take them, but they should have a trial right in front of the Supreme Court itself. Uh, with all of the judges holding a gavel and making rulings on evidence, it would be a spectacle. It would be great. 
especially if if Ohio State could sue Michigan. I mean, uh, oof. yeah. Nope. So so the the I mean the cases are the the cases here are just great. I, I think my my favorite quote is that the, one of the compilers said that they run right like threads of gold through the reports. <laughs> I did not know that. That's we, we, great. Which I think is partially a reference to the fact that that they're kind of difficult to find and assemble in one place. And 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 you talked about um, you you were looking into in maybe creating some sort of standings. Yeah, I, did, I think I did that once. A, a research assistant and I um, we did. He, I mean, uh, you know, the re, my research assistant David, who is now a practicing lawyer in New York, um, he went through all the cases from the last century or something like that and decided who won and we we compiled the standings uh and if i remember right minnesota and maybe wisconsin came out on top certainly minnesota uh was this, like something like 6 and 0 in their original jurisdiction um <laughs> contests and somebody from the minnesota supreme court wrote me an email uh saying that he was really appreciative of my work in this area <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, to to you know, know that weirdly though, the the national press did not pick up on that on that standing those standings that I had kind of hoped they would. Right. Well, we'll have to we'll have to work on. Um, you'll, you'll have to do the update um, sooner. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll right. Maybe I'll tweet about that a little tonight. You know? Um. In. in probably what's needed here is some champerty. You probably need to go around and convince more states to sue each other. Um, yeah, well, that would that would help, right? And then I could be the. But you see, by see, if it became really big, then you know, then Lessig and uh, you know Sunstein, they'd all be, then they'd all start writing about it, and I would get forgotten again. Right. It's, uh, it's a catch twenty two, you know, sort of for me. And and, and I should add that the um, there's ninety nine of these that where the court has said yes, we have jurisdiction, and we're going to hear the case and. So Florida is asking for for number one hundred. So this will maybe oh, will uh-huh. we'll have the cent- centennial case. That's um, great. And, uh, maybe we should write this together. Right. I think we, we'll we'll have to we'll have to get right on that. Um, and 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 then the book turns to to um, uh, it, after a couple of chapters, it turns to the twenty first amendment, um, and the topic is federalism. Right. Yeah. The twenty. So the twenty first amendment is. Uh, the one that repealed prohibition, uh, prohibition being that uh, failed experiment to not let people drink or manufacture alcohol anywhere. And, and what's interesting about the 21st Amendment, well, there are lots of things that are interesting about the 21st Amendment, but one is that there's this, uh, there's this clause, second clause in the amendment that people might not know too much about, and it, um, I'm trying to find the language here. It says... That, that the transportation into any state uh, for delivery um, or use of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby pro- prohibited. And there's a question that's raised uh, by this st- amendment about whether the states, whether whether the provision actually authorizes the states to take actions that would otherwise be unconstitutional if they want to regulate liquor. And so it's a it's a it's a it's an issue that nobody would really know about outside some really esoteric legal practices, but it's a pretty interesting one. 
um, because it does sort of, it, it, the 21st Amendment is after the First Amendment, it's after the 14th Amendment, and arguably, by including this provision, the framers of the amendment sought to give states some extra power that they wouldn't otherwise have under the Constitution to deal with, with liquor. And there have been big cases, cases have gone to the Supreme Court uh, and um, about that issue, and most recently the Supreme Court said that no, uh, that's not really what the 21st Amendment, Section 2, meant. But there, it's, a, it's, a, it's a plausible argument and an interesting one to think about the relationship between federal government and the state. And, and you have, um, in, in that case, you um, provide a, a behind-the-scenes. Now, I'm assuming that this is not a, anything like how, when you were clerking at, at, at 1 First Street, that, that the actual uh, discussions would go. Because, first of all, it, it seems very much out of order. Um, <laughs> Plus, Justice Rehnquist says, mmm, pineapple wine, yummy, which might not have happened. But, but the the import here, without giving away too much, is that um, they've just really gotten themselves stuck in this case, and and everyone is voting in all sorts of strange coalitions. Um, right. Yeah, it comes out uh, very. Um, so you're referring to a little play, really, that I wrote right. uh, that's in the book. It's called "The Justices Deliberate Granholm versus Held," which is the name of the case, and and I just imagine what they might have been talking about at their conference. And uh, by uh, kind of infer what they might have talked about by, by what they wrote in the um, in the opinion, but I add jokes. And um, it is a weird case because they do line up in a really strange coalitions, which they don't, which they very rarely ever have before or since, uh, which sort of demonstrates the strangeness of the provision, I suppose. Uh, but you know, I, I don't really, I can't be sure that this isn't exactly what they talked about during the conference because. Of course, nobody's ever in the conference other than the justices themselves. So it's very well could be that they talked about how delicious pineapple wine was. Um, you know, unless they let's start letting people in, I think that we could, we're free to kind of speculate um, about about what they talked about. And, and, that's what I did. and the sort of real world issue that you you focus on here is is bottomless and or topless dancing, um, and yes. they've. The, the courts really struggled with these, with these dancing cases over the years. Right. So one of the questions is whether uh, a state or a, a local government or something can prohibit what otherwise would be First Amendment activities like nude dancing or nude uh, um, stripping or whatever, uh, if they can... If they can use their power, the states can use their power under the Section 2 of the 21st Amendment to regulate that activity, which would otherwise not be regulable, let's say, uh, because the 21st Amendment post-states the First Amendment. And so uh, the idea of the Constitution would be that the states have more power to regulate liquor dancing, uh, new dancing in liquor establishments than they would new dancing elsewhere. And I think this court hasn't, the court from time to time has said, yeah, but I think for the most part they've said no. And this raises an interesting issue because, it, well, well, two interesting issues is that the test for obscenity famously is something along the lines of "I know it when I see it." So, that's what it used to be, but I don't think. I mean, I, I mean, it, it, it still sort of maybe boils down to that, but it, that's what it used to be back in the day before the, the new Miller versus California test it gives it a little bit more shape. But yeah, that's what that's what it was. 
So, so how do you how do they decide these cases where it's it's live performances and they can't see it? I mean, well, I guess yeah, that's no, I mean, I, I, you know, I get, you want me to say that they that they go there and watch, uh, but of course they they never leave the building, so they can't they wouldn't be able to do that. See, what was great about the the cases involving the movies is that they could just go down into the basement and watch the movie uh, on the VCR or whatever of the, at the court and decide whether it was obscene. Uh, but if you have to go out of the building to actually go to the place where the thing happens, the, the justices would never do that because they, they, they don't ever go try to actually see where these cases come from. And, and there's the recent um, behind the case HBO documentary for um, the, the Ali case. And oh, right, the Ali case, yeah. Uh-huh. And it and it depicts the, um, the sort of some sort of session where the justices are previewing videos and cases because they, they're looking to grant certiorari in, a, in an obscenity case. So they have a lot of oh. homework to do in, uh-huh. the, in the movie theater there. Um, That's excellent. They should, they show the actual movie theater that the, that the justices use. Yeah, yeah. They show them watching it and discussing it. Um, uh-huh. And, and, you know, and, and, and some of them seem more and some of them seem less familiar with what they're watching. Uh, um, that's great. And, th- but they were all men at this point, right? Right. Yeah. So, so it was, um, I, I wonder if the, if the theater has been less used. Um, I, you know, I couldn't find it when I was clerking. I looked for the, for the theater and I, I wasn't able to locate it. Well, oh, so do you think it has been dis- disassembled? It's either disassembled or it lies behind some sort of fake door, uh, <laughs> that only the justices know about I mean, behind which there's some sort of, you know, there's, a, there's a lounge, a plush velvet lounge, but um, I wasn't able to find it. I mean, they've, they've shown the computers that the Supreme Court justices have. I'm not sure that those can play videos. <laughs> Are they TRS-80s? Right, yeah. They're, 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 they seem a bit dated. Uh, <laughs> I bet, it's, I bet I'd like the TRS-80 color, 4K color computer that I had when I was 12. Right. Next, very interesting clause. And another one where, I mean, it just seems like you're you're making these clauses famous is... Uh, letters of Everything Mark. I touch turns to gold, really. Right. Yes. You, it's it's alchemy. This is this is constitutional alchemy. Is the letters of Marquis and reprisal clause? Uh huh. You and, think I made that famous? What happened? Did well, something happen? Well, I mean, now that I mean, the uh, Captain Phillips movie has come out. Oh, the Captain. Is it? Did they mention it in the Captain Phillips movie? Um. Well, you know, I'm I'm, I'm stretching it here. I mean, they, <laughs> yeah, they don't. Yes. <laughs> They, 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 but you're right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh-huh. They, they, they do um, have restrictions. I mean, they, it's very apparent they have restrictions. They, they don't have um, anything other than these water cannons. And I don't think uh-huh. that's because um, the, the Maersk couldn't, Alabama didn't have it in the budget, right? They, uh-huh. they, they clearly um, are avoiding having armament because they don't have their letters of marquee and reprisal, I right? I see what you're saying. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, yeah, so the so the so, and you think it's called the letters of Marquis, huh? Not Mark. Oh, oh, I might be saying it wrong. That's embarrassing. No, I don't. I don't really know either. But um, I'm going to call him Mark. I but, think that's but, what it uh, is. I, I think I have it wrong. Agree that we don't know for sure. Um, in any event, yeah, the letters of Mark and reprisal is the uh, the the clause that gives Congress the power to give private ships the authority to to uh, fight pirates on the government's behalf, or to fight pirates, and then then they have to bring back the booty, and it gets sorted out by the government. And after the Maersk, Alabama incident, there was uh, the, some of the Ron Paul, Ron, um, this 
wanted wanted to revive the letters of mark and reprisal clause to authorize um, boats to fight the Somali pirates and you know the new version of pirates piracy in on the east coast of Africa and whatever and it went it didn't go anywhere um, but it was discussed and it was uh, noted in the newspapers and such and so um, you know it's a possibility for the future right if the government uh, wants to use private boats to, to fight its battles or we start losing money for the Navy or we start not wanting to have a, as big of a standing Navy as we used to, um, we can use this power um, that hasn't been used since like 1812 to authorize ships to fight for the government. It would be cool because everyone loves pirates. And in, in, in you use this clause uh, to discuss foreign affairs – and, and this is, I think, the chapter that's the, the closest to um, would have, could have, should have been a Law Review article. I mean, the way that you point out that the, the clause is um, used um, on, bo- on both sides and in different ways in defining the, the president's other war powers. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, I guess it was so complex that I've forgotten it. <laughs> the details of it, uh, but yeah, no, there, there. But I don't think I came up with any of that. I think right people or people make that argument both ways about whether uh, whether the existence of this clause says anything about uh, what Congress can do in foreign affairs. And um, I just think I just noticed it. I don't. Th- I don't think that would count for a large view article unless I kind of pretended like I was filling a important gap in the academic literature, which I guess I pretend I, I, you know it's it's just it, it, i have to talk about the the, the one on page 135 um huh. where i mean I, I think it's the funniest paragraph in the book and and i i might be gi- i'm going to be giving something away here but i just can't not for the people who won't um do what they should and go and read it is yeah. you you started to discuss whether or not the use of of these letters of mark and in reprisal would um help deal with Somali pirates. And you, you, you start talking about how the experts in the field will tell you that the success of any given naval mission depends on the relationship of several key variables, including artillery power, flotilla size, mean rotation capacity of a flotilla, and median nautical distance to the command centers. And I'm literally sitting here thinking, oh, this is awesome. I need to look up all of these things and writing down your formulas. Um, and, and then, and then, all of a sudden, you 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 pull the you, you you pull the rug out from under me. Yeah, I don't I don't know anything about naval science. I I made it up to make it seem like it was uh, you know really scientific and. Uh, I mean, you, you had me fooled, and and I think that someone should take a look you, at this. This mean rotation capacity of a flotilla. Yeah, isn't that cool? That I I think I came up with that. Right. I mean, I, I, you, are you sure that you haven't done any um, naval warfare? I mean, because I, I, I thought that made a lot of sense. You know, you have to uh-huh. turn around really quickly. Um, I'm worried that I'm worried that some people in the Navy might, you know, use this uh, paragraph without reading on uh, and <laughs> try to calculate what to do um, with pirates and based on my formula, and then, uh, of course, would re- end in disaster. And, and, and I, I didn't. That should be a big warning on that page. Maybe like a superimposed warning. Don't take anything in this page seriously. Something like that. In 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 the age of the iPhone, I mean, there certainly are people who are reading this and are looking this up before 
they get to that next paragraph. I mean, there are people who are just stopping here and looking up mean rotation capacity of a flotilla, I'm sure. That's right. And then they go off and they, they don't keep reading and then they, and then they, uh, I, they lose their book on the side of the road. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm worried um, now. You've got me worried. <laughs> um, so the next clause is in, in the book. I mean, we've, we've skipped a couple of them, but the title of nobility clauses. Right. Well, that's the, that was the clause that started the whole thing. I was in, um, there was this one day at the Justice Department when President Clinton was going to Africa and some an African country wanted to give him some kind of um, um, something. I can't remember even what they wanted to give him. Some, something that could have been considered a title of nobility. And this is the kind of issue that would come to us. You know, somebody in the White House Council would say, "Can can Clinton accept this award or whatever?" And there was one of my one of my friends there, Ruby, was running around asking if anybody knew anything about the titles and nobility clauses. And I thought that was really cool. Uh, nobody knew anything about the titles and nobility clauses, of course. But um, so I, I think it turned out that he could accept it, although I'm not. I can't really remember for sure. But what these clauses say is basically uh, that the United States can grant no titles of nobility, so they can't make anybody a duke or anything like that. And they also say, uh, these clauses, that anybody who holds an office, in other words, anybody who's an executive officer, cannot accept a title, like king or prince or whatever, from a foreign government. And the framers were just hated this idea that some people could be uh, sort of stamped as, uh, as better than everybody else, you know, coming from England and such. And so... They thought this was a really important kind of equality principle to write into the Constitution. And I was surprised to find that under the discussion of the nobility clause, that you have Article 1, Section 9, Article 1, Section 10, but I didn't see the Second Amendment anywhere. The Second Amendment, what does that one say? I can't. Well, Professor Peter Younger, the late Professor Peter Younger, argues Uh that. When that one says that um, in order that there be a well-regulated militia, the the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Mm, yeah, um, that, that rings a bell. That one, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so his interpretation is that um, the bearing arms there is not the sort of um, the metaphorical muskets. Um, uh-huh. That it is the coats of arms, and okay. that the meaning of the clause was that, and he calls this the original plain meaning is um, that in order to have a well-regulated militia, you need officers, and to have officers, you need gentlemen and ladies, and they just didn't want to use the gender pronoun, so they wrote it in this confusing way. So it really means that the the clause protects the right to be a lady or a gentleman and and bear arms. (laughs) That's genius. (laughs) And, And he's even found a case, you know, in like the 1949 Court of Chivalry, it discusses the right to bear arms and it doesn't just discuss it or mention it. It's about it. It's like one movie theater is like suing a shop or the other way around because one is bearing an arms that the other one is supposed to have. And it relates that though not frequently used, the court of chivalry is one of the original common law courts of England. It was like there on day one when, when um, William the conqueror shows up is because it's really important to have your to be to be able to have you have your little drawing that no one else can have because then you have your honor in your family. Um, well, that's great. I uh, I knew nothing about that, but I love that. Awesome. But, but, it's but boss, that's totally boss. 
<laughs> it would it would be it would be interesting to see a, a um, an argument that maybe the Second Amendment partially re- partially repealed the title of nobility clause. Um, <laughs> well, I think you got to write this up in your free time there at the law firm. Well, I think writing about the Second Amendment is probably not something that is a good idea, right? No. Like, it's, it, we we could we could refrain from that. That's that's people who know that they're going to be professors forever. Oh, you can make partner on the on that on the basis of that article. <laughs> um, the the next clause is, is actually one of my favorites because I'm really into um, you know English Civil War history and uh-huh. and Macaulay and so um, who, who writes the, the history of England um, the Bill of Attainder clauses. Oh yeah, that does bring back memories of England, doesn't it? Uh, although people in the United States. In the U.S. did it too. It's the idea that a law uh, could impose punishment by itself, legislative punishment, legislatively imposed punishment, which is anathema, anathema to the separation of powers. Because we want to have, uh, we want to have the the legislature set what the law is. It is the executive decide if it's been violated, and the judiciary sort of adjudicate disputes about whether it's been violated. But a legislative punishment just basically says. This guy's gonna die for you know because he's a bad guy. So the Constitution uh, prohibits it in one of its only kind of liberty-focused provisions uh, before you get to the amendments. And, and the other thing that there's there's you have to die, and then there's also the one that is um, we now own all of your stuff because you. Oh yeah, right. And, and there's this great argument by Macaulay that. Um, of course, because he he's the one who's who's cited for the Eighth Amendment stuff because the the Supreme Court's really into I think it was Titus Oates that was dragged around by his his bowels and so Ouch. the the Supreme Court cites to this all the time and so I think he's the expert on the uh, Bill of Attainder clause and he says that the Bill of Attainder clause isn't as important as as the one that pro- prohibits you from attainting a person's property versus their life because legislatures would just do that all the time. Um, uh huh. Yeah, that's bad. Like we're gonna we're gonna take all. You know, it, it, it's hard to you know kill Walmart, but if they could just take the property of Walmart, they would bump um, right. up some charges. Um, yeah. So so those are those are um, many, but not all of the the clauses that you cover. And um, I guess the question is, what were the the nearly odd clauses that you you were considering but didn't end up putting in? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm see if I can remember. I know I wanted to talk about the pardon power. Um, because I, I did a lot of work on that in the Office of Legal Counsel, and some really strange issues came up about it. And there's a paragraph in the in the final book about it. I, I decided it was not odd enough to include it, but there's some really interesting things about the pardon power. You know, the, the president has the the power to pardon up, um, uh, grant pardons for offenses against the United States, and uh, pardons and reprieves, and some questions are uh, come up about like can the president pardon himself? And is a, is a pardon something that has to be delivered to a person and received before it can take effect? Or can the president repeal the pardons? This came up a little bit in the Bush administration right at the very beginning when they were wondering, well, can we, might it be possible to rescind Clinton's uh, pardon of uh, that finance, billionaire financier, finance, whatever that guy was. Um, but so that, that was one. Um, I can't, I just, oh, uh, no, I can't remember the other ones. There were a couple others, but I can't remember what they were. 
Post roads is an interesting one. I have a colleague who's really into the post roads provision, but I never really seriously considered that one. Is there um are there like notes somewhere where you talked about the direct direct tax clause by any chance or was that no that, no should I have done that you know there could be a whole other book the the odder clauses the not quite odd clauses oh the not quite right. because you don't want to you want to you wouldn't want to undercut the ten you've selected here you'd want to well I guess you could I guess it could be the oddest clauses I don't know there are all sorts of different ways you could go about it you could you could write that I mean that that would if you wrote that book, that would help me sell my book. Right. I think. I think we should. Maybe, maybe there's. A, maybe there's a blog in this somewhere. But we'll. We'll have to. Have to um, see. There but, was a blog, of course. You know. Um, oh. Okay. The Odd Clauses blog, which was. Oh, yeah, yeah I, ran, I ran that for a year, but then I got sick of it because I hate blogging. <laughs> but Twitter's but tweeting funny. is 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 a lot more fun, right? Yeah, it is. Twitter is awesome. Or um. The um, one other question I had is, what were, what were some of the other constitutional clause classification systems that you were thinking when you were selecting this book? Is when you chose odd and you defined it, and and you explained why it was that you thought that was a good classification. But did you have like the um, most useless clause or? Um, uh, no, I didn't. Uh, you know, it's th- that day that my friend was running around trying to find out what the t- titles of nobility clause was. I I thought of the the, the title for the book that day. I thought. We get, I should write a book called The Odd Clauses. So I've been, I had been talking about that title and that classification uh, for as long as I had the idea of the book. Now, other people <clears throat> were you know, pushing me to, to, to classify things differently, like the stupidest clauses. You know, there's a, there was a whole academic symposium about the stupidest provisions of the Constitution. Useless um, uh, would certainly be a possibility, but I, 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 never, I never wavered from odd. Now, um, I, don't, do I can't you, do it all, you know. I, I can't. I, I, you know, I, I'm just one person. We, we, well, so in in yeah. that brings us to this Google Constitutional Database. Have you seen this, this project from Google? No. So Google. Has Once a, I wrote this book, and I start. I, I forgot all about odd clauses and constitutional. Yeah, odd, just but. put it in the drawer. Leave it. You one writes to make a home for oneself in the mind of others, and then never visit. Is that the Beautiful. Um, the so Google has, is, I guess, a few years ago said, oh, "We've got all these countries that are having these revolutions after the Arab Spring, and we ought to give them some help, right?" So Google makes this website where they say, "Okay, here's all of the the, the menu of constitutional mm. clauses, right?" And, um, and 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 that's the thing is, you know, how do you write a good constitution? But they, they they either seem to be going for soundness or or are they just a really bad at completeness because you know when they have their like here's the subjects to cover they they definitely don't get all of the ones that you have here in this book uh, ah, so that means you got I think the foreign governments need to supplement their research they need to look at the Google project but they also need to buy the odd clauses and take a look at it. and should probably be translated into most of the world's languages yeah that you know and hopefully through the medium of podcasting we can. Announced that if you are writing a constitution, that that there is a book for you to. Um, and I could they could hire me as a consultant, you know, just to work on some of the sort of marginal parts of their constitution, not the main things like freedom of religion or anything like that, but just sort of around the you know little things that people, other smarter people might not have thought of. How awesome would that business? Like Noah Feldman could write the main constitution, and I can just come in and I can <laughs> sort of clean up around the edges. <laughs> 
And flavor. I can see, like, you know, you're the interior decorator and, like, showing them around. You've got, like, a suitcase that you open up. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's- yeah, we could throw this in. I mean, this would go beautiful next to your, uh, you know, free exercise clause if we had this little the little uh, accepting Sundays clause. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's wonderful. But it would, you would have such a great business card, too. It would, oh. you know, constitutional consultant. Um, that would be awesome. And there'd be a little ferret on the, top, on the front of it. Right, right. Um, so you're busy at work on your next book. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm working on my. I mean, I, I've, I've also written a novel, but that it's currently uh, I'm shopping it around. But but in, but is, uh, is it Ed Tuttle, Associate Justice again, or is it different? Yeah, no, it's about a, it's it's the it's about Ed Tuttle, Associate Justice, and his 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 days as a justice in one of the big terms of the uh, of the modern era. But uh, in terms of my uh, nonfiction <clears throat> um, books, I'm working on a book uh, called "God Is Not Green" or "God Is Not Always Green," when religious practice and the environment and the environment when environmentalism and religious practice collide, something like that. <laughs> working title. Yeah, well, you know the title end up like the, the title ends up. The odd clauses stayed like this uh, from the very beginning, but other titles like my first book. Holy Hullabaloo started off as free exercise, expensive gas, which I still really like. But um, but the people at Beacon Press were thought that nobody would have any idea what that meant. So you know you can't give you can't get too attached to a title. And it, but but the book this, this book that I'm working on now is about is about um, instances around the world where you see religious practices harming the environment in some way, and what the societies try to do about it, what the legal system and otherwise try to do to reduce the pollution or harm, other environmental harm from religious practices. And it's been, it's sort of like Holy Hollow Blues in the sense that it's a road trip book. So I've been going around the world uh, to check out these cool things that are going on and writing about it. Is, is there a lot more pre-screening of the, uh, of the topics from the publisher or, um, you know, are they oh, no, no not another weights and measures clause, you know? <laughs> no, um, no, no pre-screening. Um, you know, I, 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 wrote in a proposal and said where I was thinking about going and they were very happy about that. And, um, so they're on board and it's, I have a lot left to write, but I've made most of my trips. I think it should be done. My due date is the end of 2014, December 31st, 2014. And if that works out, uh, it should be out sometime in 2015. Well, well, that'll be great. And maybe we'll have you, we'll have you back on and, and, um, Really looking forward to that. Um, as a final thought, do you have um, a, an update for us on the laugh track standings from the Supreme Court on the how are the justices doing in um, in in getting laughs? Yeah, well, I'm looking right here uh, at the current standings, and Justice Scalia is. I mean, there aren't. Well, so here, it's Scalia has 30, Breyer has 24. This is as of mid January. Uh, Roberts has 12, Sotomayor has 8, Kennedy and Alito have 7, Kagan has 3, and Ginsburg and Thomas have 0. So at the top, it's pretty much the way it always is. Breyer was, um, for a while, challenging Scalia for top spot, but Scalia's kind of pulled away in the last week. Breyer could close things up this week, you know, if he if he works at it. I know he's t- working with Sarah Silverman uh, to... Uh, to on his technique, but I don't know if that's going to help. And then what uh, it's interesting that Sotomayor is in fourth place. She's gotten a lot of laughs. She's pretty funny. Her book is pretty funny. Actually, I thought it was great. And 
what's really, but what's really uh, remarkable about this term is how terrible Elena Kagan's doing. I mean, everybody thought that she was going to come in and give Scalia a run for his money. Schumer said as much at her confirmation hearing. And by all accounts, she is a very funny person, but she only has three laughs. And it's a real disappointment, I think, for Kagan watchers everywhere. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's a little bit interesting to have the standings be as they are and have you track this so so faithfully and to have um, the justice that you clerked for so consistently um, serious. Yeah, she's, she's no good with laughs. The last time I saw her was last year about this time. And this was right after Justice Thomas uh, spoke for the first time in years and years and years. And not only did he speak, but he got a laughter uh, notation on the transcripts, which is just unbelievable. He speaks once, he gets one laugh. It's like a thousand percent. Um, And so he had one and Ginsburg had zero. And I saw her and I said, um, you know, Justice Thomas just got a laugh. You got to, you got to, um, catch up with them. This is really bad. And she said that she said, nobody knows what he said. And <laughs> yeah, I think I remember this. They, there was a controversy about the, what was the transcript, right? Or, right. They nobody knew what he said. And then they, re, but then they released a revised transcript with, with his joke, which was something about uh, a joke about Harvard law school and how Harvard law school uh, graduates are maybe not, great lawyers or something like that. It was, I, think, I think it was like something to the effect of just Harvard law. Meh. Nah. Nah. And then everybody <laughs> laughed. Which killed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, if he does, I, it's so exciting. It's so interesting. I mean, that was, that was maybe the greatest day of my whole life. <laughs> that's, um, that's pretty good. And, and there was another, wasn't there more recent controversy over the laugh, laughter um, notations in the transcripts? Oh, yeah, there was Laughtergate, um, which was really <laughs> quite incredible. The first, the first day uh, of arguments, they, the transcript had no laughters. I mean, they had no notations of laughter in it. And we were wondering, you know, those of us who care about this and, you know, Supreme Court laughter studies departments across the country were wondering what you know whether the trans the 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 um the the reporter had decided to do away with these laughter notations which would have been you know one of the worst things that could possibly have happened to me <laughs> you and, had to listen to the arguments yeah no and but I'm not interested in that see I'm not interested in actually how much in actual laughter there is I'm I'm only interested in quote laughter not real <laughs> laughter and so so there would be nothing to study for me. I mean, others, others are interested in the real laughter. Have you, have you gotten, have people attempted to submit corrections and. Oh, they often, uh, on Twitter or whatever, ask me my methodology or suggest that, you know, maybe, I mean, some, there are other people who, who count these things too, and we don't have the same numbers. <laughs> and so I'm asked about it and I tell them that my methodology is to, um, haphazardly and in a slipshod manner, look through the transcripts and try to keep them out. <laughs> That's my methodology. Uh, so it, it inevitably leads to incorrect results uh, and unreliable data, but that's part of the, you know, the project. This this is this reminds me of the the green bag um, bobblehead certificate boilerplate language um, that you know I, I you certif- you're certifying your results not at all um, <laughs> exactly um, arbitrary and capriciously um, tabulating the laughter of the Supreme Court justices. This has uh, been. New Books in Law with Jay Wexler to discuss his book, The Odd Clauses. If uh, you would like more on 
um, legal humor and especially uh, knowing just how funny our justices are, you can follow him on at SCOTUS Humor. Um, that's all the time we have for this episode. Stay tuned. Stay, stay iTuned for the next New Books and Law podcast. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at Clee Quality for updates on upcoming episodes. 